Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast produced by the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the ever-strong Detroit, Michigan. I am your host, Dan Galadner, along with Troy Eller-English. Hi, Troy. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine. Everything's fine. All is well. Puppies and sunshine and rainbows. Excellent to hear. Unicorns, too, running down your street? Absolutely. Of course. Anyway, okay, uh, let's get to this. Okay, I'm going to oversimplify here. Uh, why not? Um, I do that all the time anyway. You know, in, in archives, sometimes those researchers, they get those big thesis ideas. They change things. They change the way we look at history. And then the other his, uh, historians and researchers, they're the ones that add the insight. The, they add to the conversation. And in today's episode, we talked to a researcher that adds a nice nugget of information into a larger conversation on racial pragmatism. That, that the heavyweights like Cornell West and Eddie, Eddie Glotty and Judith Green talk about. We had the pleasure of talking with Sean Henry, who works for the Detroit Public School Community District as a college transition advisor. Now, two years ago, he completed his MA the thesis at the University of Chicago titled Racial Pragmatism and the Conditions of Racial Contact, the Detroit Interracial Committee, Public Schools, and Measuring Racial Tension 1944 to 1950. Now, before that, he was an English teacher in Detroit public schools, and also he did a stint in Teach for America. We talked with him about the, his thesis, which won the Graduate Student Essay Prize from the Michigan History Review, Historical Review, sorry, in the spring of 2020, because he took a nice deep dive into our collection that's called, the, that's called the Detroit Commission on Community Relations. Now, he specifically looked at the records of the inter, interracial committee that was the predecessor of the DCCR and was created in direct response to the 1943 Detroit riot. So if you can understand that, listen, if you want to use that collection, it's the DCCR, and you get to look inside all sorts of wonderful things and maps and documentation. It is one of our mostly researched uh, uses collections. Now, Henry looks specifically at the efforts of the IRC, which undertook to alleviating racial tensions in Detroit via public schools and what was called the Community Barometer Initiative. Here we have a committee of politicians, civil servants, community leaders, and social scientists set out to understand race issues in the city and make a substantial effort to curb the potential of future violence. And not, as Henry says, by conciliation or radicalism, but pragmatism. So sit back and listen on the attempts made by Detroit to right the wrongs in a logical, meaningful way. And maybe we can learn something from these changes. And also wear your mask. Sean, thank you very much for joining our podcast. I do appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, well, when I saw your article... (laughs) <laughs> virtually here exactly this is the virtual way we do things now um, i really appreciate it. when i saw your article it was i, I had to reach out and uh get you on the show so let's start with what um basically what 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 was detroit as well as other northern cities like during world war ii yeah so that's a good starting point mostly because that's you know where everything got going for the for the piece for the article um World War II was kind of strange up in the north, in the urban north, um, particularly because there was like a convergence of several different historical forces all happening at the same time. So 
in urban areas, obviously man manufacturing was becoming a much bigger deal to you know provide what was needed for the war. But where there is more manufacturing, there also has to be more people and cities started rapidly growing. Um, but not only in terms of just population, but in terms of diversity as well. The African-American population, you know, due to things like the second great migration and whatnot, uh, particularly in Detroit and other, you know, similar cities like Chicago, just exploded in this period. Um, the problem though, and this is where things kind of get going in the article, um, this convergence carried negative byproducts too. Uh, more people and rapid growth means housing shortages and job shortages, and you add that to pre-existing racial prejudice, and you get things like the June 1943 riot where the article sort of starts. Um, so a bunch of different forces all happening at the same time, a lot of moving parts, um, and Northern cities kind of became somewhat of a tinderbox for these sorts of issues. Right, right, it's, it's uh, a lack of housing, uh, new people coming in, and also you also have a, a white immigra um, immigration going on as well from, as they, from the Appalachians coming in. Right. So they bring all these connotations together and mixing of people without enough housing and jamming them all in together. Um, so these committees are formed to, to recognize various uh, racial issues, and your paper is about the Detroit Interracial Committee. Uh, quickly explain, what was this committee, how did it come to be, and who's, who were on this committee? Yeah, so the, the Detroit Interracial Committee, I'm going to call it the IRC because it's a mouthful uh, to say over and over again. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, was a mayoral committee, right? So the mayor appointed uh, its initial members, um, and they were charged to solve, and I, I use air quotes, to solve race relations, right? To, to cool race relations down after the, the June 1943 riot that started on Belle Isle. Um, it kind of evolved into the real IRC that we discuss in the article and we'll discuss now on January 18th, 1944. Um, so only, what, about six months after those riots? But it did, and I discussed this in the paper, it did succeed like a long chain of similar entities that came to be and faded and came to be and faded since basically the mid to late 20s, um, all with different names. And uh, I actually really like it too. I think I included in the piece uh, a couple, well, then Wayne University, right? Wayne State University sociologists in 1946, only a couple years after this, this committee started, they, they described these entities as having come into existence after riotous events, studied the situation, prepared and submitted reports and recommendations, and then quietly and ineffectually passed into oblivion. <laughs> and I, thought yeah, that was, I love that quote. That's, that was good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I thought it was just a, a poetic way to <laughs> reflect on kind of how these committees are seen, you know, how they were seen only two years after they started and how they kind of still are seen when you, when you look at the historiography of these interracial committees um, as just ineffective and uh, kind of publicity stunts almost to solve racial problems. But I, this, this interracial committee, this IRC, that we'll discuss that started in January 1944, I would argue sort of broke this mold of fading into oblivion over and over again. Um, in terms of who sat on it, the first, uh, the first iteration of this committee was six African-Americans and six whites. Um, and it was a blend of civil servants, uh, politicians, um, various philanthropists, attorneys, uh, educators, labor organizers, and even uh, medical doctors. Um, 
and it shifted around a bit over the years, but generally it followed this pattern um, of being a somewhat equal blend, not only racially, but of different um, professions and sorts of influence in the city. Interesting. Interesting. Who, who, who usually, who chaired the, uh, the committee? I'm just curious. Was it it's someone that shifted around a lot? Um, mm-hmm. I, I talk about uh, this man named Coogan. Uh, I don't remember his first name off the top of my head. There's so many names because, you know, it really was fluid. A lot. But J.E. Coogan or J.R. Coogan was a, he was a professor. He's the head of department of sociology at uh, UDM uh, at the time. And he was also a minister. Uh, he wore a bunch of different hats, but it just seems like, it seems like, and I don't have exact proof for this, but that like the most senior member would kind of chair the committee. Um, gotcha. But again, it seemed a little bit on and off at the beginning anyway, because of the passing into oblivion thing. Right, right, right. So, okay. So there was a subcommittee that was created. Um, it was called the barometer subcommittee. And what they did was basically that. They, they tested the barometer, the readings of Detroit. They, they gathered data um, and they, put, they pushed the data out. Um, how did they get this in- information and what was the output? And specifically, you know, why did you, men- why did you focus on this barometer um, subcommittee? Yeah, so the article is sort of split into two pieces. Uh, one is about Detroit Public Schools, but this community barometer part is what really got me you know, once I came across it in the archive, I was, I, I knew this is what I wanted to focus on. Um, and I just thought it ended up working well with the DPS portion. But the barometer, the community barometer of the IRC, right? So I'm just probably just going to call it the barometer, um, was this really innovative, this really new approach to trying to figure out how to solve, and again, air quotes, solve racial prejudice. Um, right. So I thought it was, an incredible look at what I saw as a quantitative approach to solving a really qualitative social issue. They're basically trying to measure and map racial tension by tracking uh, incidents of, you know, racially motivated incidents. Um, so the, the woman in head of this or in charge of this subcommittee, Beulah Whitby, I think deserves an entire book of her own. Um, she is a very unique figure that just came up over and over again, you know, in the in the mess of sources that I was looking at while I was trying to put this piece together. And uh, she was very involved in the housing community in Detroit, um, in the fair housing community. Uh, she was just she was just a, a quintessential public servant, and uh, her work with this committee was just incredible to me. So she she deserves a lot more uh, historical attention, I think. But um, the barometer basically collected reports, right? And when they were created, they, they came up with kind of three streams of reporting. The first being from the Detroit Police Department, right? They tried to standardize a reporting procedure with DPD regarding racially motivated incidents. Um, the DSR, the Department of Street Railways, like, you know, pre-DDOT kind of thing. That's how I see it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, volunteer reporting which is kind of where the it seems like the meat of the barometer was from this volunteer reporting system um and much of what i try to dive into when looking at the first few years of the barometer is figuring out exactly how they got these reporting streams to even work uh because this this seemed at least to me and it seemed like from reading the accounts of these meetings the early meetings of the barometer subcommittee um that they were again we were talking about this with like we are right now trying to figure things out day by day 
with COVID, they were definitely trying to figure things out day by day because this appears to not have been done before, or at least in such a kind of formalized way. Um, so trying to get the reporting streams to work, trying to standardize these reports so they can, you know, be collected in a in an efficient way. And then, of course, when you have personal volunteer reports, trying to minimize the, the impact of personal biases when they're reporting these incidents of quote unquote racial tension. Um, mm -hmm. But the output is basically um, a relatively massive for the time database of reports of racially motiva motivated incidents in the city. And they even ended up categorizing these incidents um, by severity. And like, was it a verbal incident or a verbal altercation? Did it come to blows? Were there projectiles used? Was there a deadly weapon involved? And, um, mm -hmm. but that, you know, the, the first problem was trying to figure out how to report before even grappling with what to do with the data that they gathered. And who were the volunteers? Were they uh, churches, community organizations, unions? Yeah, so initially, it, uh, kind of all of the above. Um, initially, it just seems like they walked out onto the street and picked like 30 people to start reporting incidents, <laughs> which obviously isn't a very good, uh, if you're going for some sort, if you're going for quantitative integrity, that's not really a good move. Um, but that first year, they they had meeting after meeting trying to figure out how to broaden not only broaden, but deepen this kind of reporting, this reporting stream in particular, because the DPD and DSR ones were very much like standard because they would get weekly reports from, you know, both of those entities. But it appeared probably by about the end of the first year that they had actually um, recruited different organizations pretty intentionally to try to make sure that their bases, you know, for lack of a better term, their bases were covered. Um, they brought DPS, and we'll talk about them later. They brought Detroit Public Schools in, and they, you know, had a semi-standard reporting system with teachers and administrators. They brought in um, labor organizers. They brought in the NAACP. They brought in churches, like you mentioned. They they started using these other social organizations to try to to try to not only publicize but also standardize the reporting process. So. I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I know in the first couple of months, their reporting base consistently doubled from meeting to meeting. So there were several hundred by the end of this kind of first stage before they actually started doing stuff with the data. Wow. That that sounds like a bureaucratic paper nightmare, actually. But so the secretary actually, you know, I'm thinking about this. So the secretary is looking at all this paper. Her name was Helen Kolka, and she wrote a thesis paper based on the barometer uh, subcommittee. So she broke it down for you, right? All you had to do was read her thesis. She explained everything, huh? Yeah, it's, yeah that, it kind of worked out nicely. Um, I was writing my own thesis about someone else's thesis by the end. Um, <laughs> but uh, the unfortunate thing was I didn't come across her thesis until after I gleaned all this information from the minutes, which most of the paper is built from trying to reassemble minutes from these meetings. Um, but yeah, the, the cool thing, the ironic thing is, is that Helen Colca is the one that wrote all the minutes too. So I feel like I got to know her by the end uh, of this whole thing. But uh, she was a, she was actually a grad student serving on, as the secretary of this committee, she was a grad student at Wayne University in the sociology department. And she completed this master's thesis as part of her program. Uh, and she chose the community barometer because it appeared in her introduction that she saw it as the most effective branch of the IRC. Um, 
which I thought was pretty cool. And it also gave me a little bit of guidance on how to focus my own research into the IRC. Um, <laughs> but for me, it was just an awesome, like, true historical source uh, in my mind because it was written at the time. Um, it was a true window into, like, the day-to-day workings because she was sitting there the whole time of how the community barometer worked. And then I feel like, I, I do feel like that those kinds of day-to-day workings would have been lost if she had not written this piece because the minutes, you know, minutes are just that. It's the official record of a meeting. It was really, it was really cool to get this kind of personal look into what was going on. Um, but her thesis is basically this personal reflection on the data gathering strategies we just talked about. Um, and the, it really belies the struggles that they had as master's theses do. But, uh, she discusses how they collated the data by severity, like I talked about a little bit ago, and by location to truly map out where racial tension was flaring up in Detroit, um, and then made recommendations to the larger IRC later on once they had more kind of comparative data to look at. Um, but again, I, I do think the coolest part of this whole thing and the most historically valuable part of this whole thing, and she talks about it in her piece too, is how they were using quantitative methods to try to solve qualitative social issues. And I think, you know, given that this was about 80 years ago, that seems very innovative to me compared to how we normally look at, you know, the hearts and minds approach to trying to solve racial tensions and like the racially liberal approaches to trying to resolve racial prejudice. Um, the one flaw I would say about the thesis is that it was written very soon after, I, I don't have the date right in front of me, but it was written very soon after um, the barometer was started. So she could only like kind of dip into how these pieces of data were being used to map. It was mostly about how they came up with their data gathering strategies, but that wasn't necessarily her fault because it was so early on in the process. I wish she had written kind of a follow-up later on, but chances are she was done with her, uh, her graduate studies at that point. But um, I do think it's a, it's a very nice window into how the, the barometer worked that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Right, and um, exactly. And that's what you sum up in your, in your article. But I think what you, when, you, when you say in your article, like the entire subcommittee can kind of be summed up with that one of their last meetings and that was March 12th, 1945. Um, could, you, could you tell us, can you tell us about that meeting and what happened? Yeah, that March 12th meeting I feel like was the meeting that I like sat at <laughs> because I, I stared at the minutes of this meeting so much because I was trying to figure out if what I was seeing was actually what I was seeing. Um, so it actually kind of started in Kolka's uh, piece. Um, it turned me on to this weird relationship that the community barometer committee or subcommittee had with labor, right? Um, and that was one I hadn't really seen before. They did contact the UAWCIO when they were looking for more community organizations to try to get personal or volunteer reports. Um, but that was really the only mention of labor uh, in the whole thing until I saw Kolka's thesis. Um, and then I ended up coming across this March 12th meeting in this pile of minutes from meetings. And for me, it was one of the defining moments of the IRC by proxy of the community barometer, right? Cause it was just, the IRC was the larger umbrella and for me, it really showed how the IRC saw itself as an active body trying to make inroads in combating racial injustice and combating racial tension. Um, so at this March 12th meeting, um, they held this symposium that they called 
successful methods in race relations. Um, all the titles of these little things make me laugh every time because they're just so broad. <laughs> yeah. But where basically three labor leaders from the, um, was it the War Manpower uh, Commission, the WMPC, the FEPC, and the UAWCIO, right? We're mm -hmm. all invited to try and discuss how they pushed against racial issues on the kind of, you know, proverbial factory floor, like how they were trying to combat racial prejudice in the manufacturing sector. Right. Um, but for me, what this meant, um, most importantly, it showed that the barometer felt like it could push into the private sector, which they prioritized because of the data they gathered through the barometer um, data collection process. And I think it's quite the power move by a municipal committee with no budget and that is comprised of volunteers to try to push against private sector issues. And that, you know, that is kind of the crux of the whole community barometer portion of my article. These interracial committees were very often in the historiography seen as ineffective publicity stunts after racial upheaval, like June 1943. Right. But Actions like this, where they try to push into the private sector, really, really shows that they did not see themselves as a publicity stunt, that they really tried to make inroads in these processes or in these against these issues to make sure things like June 1943 never happened again. And obviously we know, you know, hindsight is 2020. And from our perspective, we know 1967 happened. So these things did not necessarily work, quote unquote, but I do think it was a power move by them to do that. And but at this panel of labor leaders, the community barometer folks get really disappointed with the answers that they get from these from these three men about the efforts that they're taking to make sure, you know, some degree of racial equality and equity was, you know, pursued on the factory floor. And they are vocal about it. They're saying you only meet, you know, X number of these criteria that we were hoping to see. Uh, after this panel, we were hoping to use uh, labor as kind of a, a, a good example of what um, effective policies for racial justice can look like, but that is not what they found at all. They found, you know, especially the, uh, especially the UAW CIO at the time, they were not pleased with the extent to which they were focusing on these issues. And uh, ultimately, though, this, this barometer labor thread just fades in the record. So this this meeting right here is is where it basically ends. I don't I don't see anything about it afterwards, um, hmm. which I was sad about because I was hoping like I was hoping to write my whole paper about that, <laughs> but hmm. it just kind of faded. But either way, I do think it was a really illuminating chapter in kind of the story of the IRC and how they saw themselves as like an actual effective or a body capable of changing things um, rather than writing themselves off as an ineffective fact-finding mission. Right, right. So it, it seems like they, the ambitions they were trying to get to with these numbers and really exposing minutia of what racial issues were going on came across private industry going, no, no, you, you're, you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're stepping out of your lane there with all this art information. So back off a bit, it seems like. I'm sure there was backdoor things that are not written down. For sure. They just disappeared like that. Yeah. So Yeah. And um, I would I would love to I would love to have been at the couple meetings after that because I, you know, there's no way it just kind of fell off the cliff like that. But I yeah. 
I do think there, I mean, they did have like, we do have more tangible examples of what they did with the data. I just think the, the private sector window here through this labor kind of chapter in the story for me was the most illuminating, but they do give in a bunch of their progress reports and whatnot. And it's all in the article. Um, mm-hmm. They hosted these neighborhood jamborees in neighborhoods where racial tension had been flaring up according to their mapped data. And, uh, you know, looking at them now, it's, kind of superficial what they did, but they go and they show patriotic movies and they, they host uh, like dances and things like that in these neighborhoods to try to quell racial unrest. But uh, again, it's, it's a municipal commission actually doing something, right? Like yeah, actually, yeah. you know, coming up with action steps in, like 80 years ago, which, which for me was so striking. Yeah. Exactly. So at least they were trying something you could say, you know, instead of just writing the report and moving on. But the second part, well, part of the the other half of your uh, article is about the Detroit public schools. Um, And DPS, you write about the first part of that, that half is the DPS came out with these two reports that IRC looked at and dissected. Um, What were these reports and why were they so enlightening to what was going on? in the classrooms, in the curriculum, in hiring. Yeah. So to kind of give uh, just a little context for the the article here, this came up because the IRC actually invited, uh, well, ironically enough, one of the founding members of the original IRC was the superintendent of DPS at the time. His name was Warren Bow or Bow. Um, Don't know how it's pronounced uh, because it was just written in the minutes. But um, yeah they were invited, uh, Bao was no longer on the committee and they had a new superintendent, Arthur Dondino, but they, uh, they invited DPS to an IRC meeting to basically give a presentation about um, this program of intercultural education, they called it, that they had developed. And that a lot of, um, particularly in the urban North, a lot of cities were developing in their, their public school systems, this, you know, how do you grapple with these issues that are happening with racial upheaval in public education, right? So they came to deliver this presentation and these two documents that you referenced um, were kind of the foundation of this presentation. Like the reason they were invited to present at the IRC in in the first place to to flaunt their progress with these sorts of issues. So the first one was this, um, I call it a manifesto because it really reads like a manifesto um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) called Building One Nation Indivisible uh, from 1945 and then um, kind of a follow-up to Building One Nation, almost like a progress report on it, um, called Promising Practices in Intergroup Education from 1947. And they they basically just captured DPS's flagship intercultural education program that the district admin was very publicly flaunting and, you know, is still today in, you know, the history of education is still praised as being ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reports in general spend a lot of time philosophizing about equality and justice. There's this whole segment in uh, Building One Nation Indivisible. You can, you know, you can tell from the name. The whole introduction doesn't even dive into pedagogy at all. The whole introduction is purely this kind of, I don't know what the right word is, but they, they have this whole thing about the, the Latin phrase, a pluribus unum, and saying like out of one, um, what is it? Out of many come one, or out of one come yeah, right. Is, right. is just uh, is still but a dream, not something we've realized yet. It's very lofty uh, 
it's, re- it's rather fun to read uh, at this point. But um, I was very kind of caught off guard by the fact that that first document in 1945 did not jump into pedagogy like at all. It was purely about what they what they hoped uh, a, democ- uh, a public school district in a democratic society could do and the power that it had. Um, but promising practices, on the other hand, does get into tangible strategies for, quote unquote, improving race relations, um, even including things like unit plans and reflections from teachers from, I believe it was a, about 152 DPS schools. So kind of like testimonials for these pedagogical strategies that were outlined in the piece. So I think both of these, I know promising practices was in the hands of the, the IRC during this meeting. I don't know if Building One Nation was, um, but I do know that this document was, you know, given out as their uh, visual aid during the presentation to the IRC a couple of years later. Right. So that second report, yeah, I, I was struck by what you described as the vicarious experiences and the personal contact approaches in the mm-hmm. pedagogy. I, I was blown away that this was actually introduced in the 1940s. Can, can you? Um, what were where where were these? Um, what were these approaches? Yeah, so per, promising practices is literally a list. I don't remember how many there are. It's like 13 or 18 or something like that of like actual teaching strategies and they called them all approaches. Uh, and yeah, I chose the vicarious experiences and the personal contacts approaches because they kind of, for me, just like you said, they seemed very ahead of their time, but also um, the second one, and I'll get into this in a second, really like, provides a perfect window into what the IRC saw as a problem in DPS, right? Because they came to flaunt this program, but it turned out that the IRC identified gaps in it um, mm-hmm. and really honed in on those gaps as time went forward. But the vicarious experiences approach for me was pretty shocking. It was basically making sure that the lives of non-white people were centered in some way in the classroom. So whether that mean you're reading a book with an African-American main character showing how an African-American child grows up or how an African-American parent takes care of a child, basically little tiny vicarious experiences, right? Like windows into um, minority characters, um, which is very similar. I work in DPS now, I was a teacher in DPS a couple of years ago. It's very similar to these culturally responsive teaching approaches that we get today, right? Like in in professional development. and it's a good thing, like trying to center non-white people and not, you know, trying not to focus on the Western quote unquote literary canon. I taught English. Um, is super important, right? It's important to see people in the literature you're reading that live lives like the lives you live. So right. to me, that was very ahead of its time. So I, I'm totally with you there. Um, the personal contacts approach though, um, really irked the IRC when they, when they <laughs> were, when they were talking about it and when DPS was talking about how effective it was. So the the philosophy behind this approach is basically suggesting that you help, if you are a, if you are a teacher with a majority white student body or with a majority white class, that you make sure that you provide opportunities for personal contacts with non-white people, right? So again, exposure uh, to, Others is an important part of education in general, but this both to the IRC and to me comes off as a, it really comes off as a a how the other half lives type of situation, um, suggesting that minority speakers be brought in to speak or even that teachers take their classes to see 
uh, again, how the other half lives, it seems like, um, whether it means field trips to concerts or museums, but they even suggest things like taking students to housing projects. To the, they mentioned <laughs> the Brewster housing project as a potential field trip you could take to gain exposure to, to, to other types of people is how they put it in the article or in the pamphlet. And oh I know it's, it's kind of it, reading it. It's, it's very cringy to read, right? Like when you're sitting there, but um, the most importantly for me, this approach is what really set the IRC on their path of looking into hiring and placement practices because nowhere in the, this discussion of creating personal contacts with non-white people, do they mention teachers could be those people, right? Or DPS staff could be those people. The only time that um, this is sort of alluded to in, this, in the discussion of this personal contacts approach is when they discuss uh, a, a lunchroom helper that um, uh, students in a majority white school seem to latch onto. And they, they say something very strange along, to the point of almost God worship, they say. They really hmm. liked this, they really liked this, uh, this lunchroom helper and this other student teacher. So the idea that the only mention of African-American staff as potential personal contacts were actually non-teaching positions was pretty enlightening for the IRC and really helped them identify hiring practices and placement practices where, where teachers and staff were placed in DPS once they, if they did get hired um, as, a, as a primary issue for the IRC to be able to tackle. Yeah, it... Um... My head's reeling right now <laughs> from what you just said, because with the personal context approaches, it really does remind me of when institutions all of a sudden say there's a problem, let's create a diversity group and we'll show off what, and we'll do field trips of what we can and let's accomplish, but without any actual justice behind it. Um, Which right now but, is obviously very, <laughs> it speaks to what's going on in the world right now. Like this exactly, not a solve. Exactly. But <laughs> that's why my head's kind of going. Yeah. Um, but um, on the hiring practices, I, 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 I you, fo- you hone in on these two distinct problems with the hiring and placement of black teachers within DPS. And what were those two, uh, those two issues? So, I, mean, I mean, I think there were, I think there were a lot of issues. Um, well, yeah. I, yeah. If you, if you narrow it down to kind of the, the two issues, Number one is the the intentional non-hiring of black educators, um, mm-hmm. as well as the intentional placement of these of black educators that do get hired in only African American majority schools. And the IRC, the folks at the IRC question this um, over and over and over again, but you know, from the outset, basically, from this initial meeting that I, I tried to give a little context about earlier, the the uh, assistant superintendent uh, Herman Bro or Brow is there, and he—I um, don't know the right way to say it—he is very defensive about this, uh, about the about the non-hiring of black teachers and the intentional placement of black teachers in only majority African American schools. Um, he even mentions, or someone even mentions somewhere along the way, that they that DPS regularly punished, and this is a somewhat of a quote, punished recalcitrant white teachers by placing them in African-American majority schools. Um, and they weren't necessarily shy about this, except for at the 
the, the, the highest levels with assistant superintendents and superintendents. But basically the IRC honed in on this as somewhat of a, um, um, what's the right word? Uh, a, a hypocritical move by DPS because they come and they present about these uh, promising moves and, you know, what was it called? Promising practices in uh, intercultural education or in interpersonal, you know, I'm, I'm losing the title here, promising practices in intergroup education, while at the same time not making an effort to hire more black teachers. And this is all while, as we discussed earlier, all while the African-American population and proportion of the population is growing very rapidly in Detroit uh, and in other cities. But essentially what they end up gathering, because they, you know, after these, after this first meeting where the IRC gets upset with um, what they see from DPS, they go on this fact-finding mission and start interviewing a bunch of different departments or folks in different departments at DPS to try to figure out how deep this problem actually goes. And eventually it leads to this 1949 report by the IRC where some pretty shocking statistics are given. Um, and I think they help with a little bit of context. So I'm going to give you a couple. Um, in 1949, what they found was that only 304 out of 4,012 teachers and one principal and one assistant principal were African-American in the 204 primary schools in DPS, right? And then it's even more shocking at the secondary level 19 of about 1,400 teachers and uh, were African-American in uh, DPS high schools. And 18 of those 19 were concentrated in the two, the only the two majority African-American schools in DPS. Um, and that to me, that just blew my mind when I saw that. Um, blew my mind. I, I guess I wasn't necessarily surprised, but I was more just surprised by the severity of, or, or the, exactly how disproportionate it was at the time when the population was growing so quickly. Only three of 703 administrative positions at high schools um, were filled by African-American people. And that includes at the majority African-American schools. And the, the IRC hones in on this as they, they call it prima facie evidence of misconduct. Um, mm -hmm. they, they use some very powerful language about how, you know, a public education system in a democratic society, you know, this is, it's kind of blasphemous to um, have hiring practices like this. Especially when they're touting themselves as, as um, ahead of the curve, doing amazing things. We yeah. are answering the issues of racial inequality and by educating the children there, but at the same time, we're not hiring or placing anything like that. So very frustrating for the IRC, I could say. Yes. Yeah. And there was definitely some, uh, Golda Krolik is one of the women that I, that was on this education committee. And, uh, she has some very, uh, <laughs> very interesting kind of not tirades. Cause again, it's a, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, I'm getting these from meeting minutes. So they're always very kind of couched in formal language, but these like these, these retorts to, to DPS administrators, higher ups, um, who are being defensive about hiring practices. Like, do you really want us to change how we're hiring people when it's how we've done it forever? And there's a lot of, uh, you know, we're putting African-Americans in schools where they'll be the safest and they're most likely to succeed. There's very much this super controlling tone from DPS that this woman, Golda Kroll, like really pushes back against in the minutes. It's some really nice history, really nice history in action right there.
Right. There you go. There it is. Yep. Um, all right. So why, why do you think your, your thesis of this is, is, I want you to answer this because you, you, you look at this committee as different from all the other different committees that have been in place, uh, from 1926 in Detroit where the mayor put together a race relations, um, committee as well and we can always we can go beyond 1940 up to the Kern report that came out in 68 you know what what was what was so unique about this irc uh that surprised you within your research yeah so i um it was very much this this piece was very much one of the one of those good moments where you're sitting there looking at the sources and you write what the source dictates right um and that's a good, number one, that's a good feeling. But number two, I, it really came off as unique because it seemed like they were, they kind of captured almost a third way in trying to approach race relations as a municipality, right? So what I mean by that is over course of the whole piece, I, I argue that these two programs, the DPS program and the, the community barometer piece, really embody a, a pragmatic approach to trying to resolve or at least cool down racial tension, um, utilizing a strategy that was much more innovative than it seemed on the surface, right? So these earlier, these earlier committees that say, you know, the 1926 study where, it, you know, that delved into racist practice by the police. This one is very much like racism is not a problem that we can solve. It is a problem that we have to try and manage, right? And that, I think, was a very ahead-of-its-time approach to racial justice. Um, and I think if you're looking at it like a spectrum, right, the IRC fell in a very useful spot somewhere between racial liberalism, right, the, the idea that you can, you can change, you can get rid of racial prejudice by um, trying to tackle hearts and minds and, you know, get rid of personal racist ideology just by convincing those that you know have racist ideologies that you know they're they're not following the right path and on the other end of the spectrum you have militant racial radicalism right and we don't see as much of that uh in this piece in in this article because i do think that they tried the irc tried to take this middle road this racially pragmatic road to trying to not only see what the, the conditions for racial contact looked like in Detroit at the time, and again, remembering that this came after a massive break in those conditions, right, the 1943 riots, mm -hmm. but also how to prioritize points of entry for the city, for a municipality, to try and make changes um, in those, at those points of racial contact. Um, so it is not to say that these other committees, you know, as, as we said towards the beginning, passed into oblivion, right? Like these, these committees started and then faded and then started and then faded. For me, these rec and it might just be because of the availability of the records, right? right. I, I really saw something new happening here compared to those earlier ones where you can, you know, survey issues and say like, yes, there is racial injustice happening. Um, we really need to come up with some solutions for that. Whereas the community barometer is like, here are the issues. These are where they're happening. We're trying to measure them. And we're going to do these things like neighborhood jamborees and other tangible action items to try to resolve, not necessarily resolve, that's the wrong word to use, but manage 
racial problems because they can't be solved. And I think that was a little ahead of its time. And obviously I mentioned this before, we know 1967 ends up happening, right? Like mm -hmm. we know it's not this panacea for these problems, but I think the value of the IRC had been underestimated to this point as one of those publicity stunts and, you know, just reporting fact-finding committees because we can see that they, that they pushed against real issues and found real quantitative evidence for racial injustice in the city and tried to actively combat those things. So that's how I saw the IRC is different from these other committees. And obviously the IRC ended up um, folding and fading into oblivion, just like all these other ones. Um, <laughs> but they, you know, they're, they're always reborn. And I think the fact that they are consistently coming back and coming back proves that they're not completely useless. So I think that's where I saw the value. And obviously the, the actual archive I used was, um, you know, titled the, the Detroit Commission on Community Relations, the DCCR, which was at the, at the Ruther Library, which was essentially a later iteration of the IRC. So these are just like records of the previous iterations of this commission that, you know, just kept evolving. It's kind of like you just say in your article, these, these commissions, these committees, these, these groups that form are um, bonds for people uh, of, of, of these people on these, on these committees to evolve into more. So they, they, they bring together a community within themselves to keep talking about it, keep doing things. And when things kind of like pop up, they know who each other are and what organization they are. So, but you've, you, you, so this is a nice segue for us. We always ask, um, what collections you used? Um, we always like to drum up our own collections. You mentioned the DCCR. Um, did you look into, um, the board of education as well? I did not actually, there was, uh, there was actually, um, the reports were so extensive in the DCCR collection from the IRC and these, these, the education subcommittee, just like the community barometer subcommittee. They were so extensive with the research that they did. They, they had these, you know, I mean, when you go back this far, you've got these amazing, like, hand-drawn, um, like, graphs and charts of employment practices and stuff. They were so extensive that I just basically used that to try to, try to reconstruct this narrative. Um, however, should this piece be, you know, converted into a, a chapter and a larger piece, the Board of Education would obviously, the, the collection on the Board of Education would obviously have its own places. Yeah. Um, yeah. kind of delving into the other side. Um, you see what they're saying. We're saying right. their minutes. I mean, we do get yeah. some of that in the DCCR collection just because, the you know, um, Helen Kolka took very good minutes, as we learn. Um, but, you know, th that would definitely have its place in a, in a much larger piece. I completed this piece as part of a master's program. And, uh, you know, if it were to ever grow into something larger, that would be a main focus as well. But the DCCR was the the primary source for all of this because it is a very extensive collection. If you ever go look at it, it's, you know, that was much amazing. Than I anticipated. <laughs> yep. Did you manage to look at the, the barometer maps? I did. Yeah. That was a uh, pretty interesting to see. Um, yeah. Those, those are I, I discussed, I think a little uh, briefly in there, uh, in the article, I mentioned a couple specific examples of where they saw flare ups. Um, and that was mostly gleaned from maps like that. Um, okay. so they mentioned, um, issues happening at the public pool in the River Rouge Park uh, as one of the one of the locations where there had been recurring 
racial incidents. Um, I believe they were they were semi-violent incidents too. They like came to blows or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also mention, uh, I think two different restaurants um, near Wayne State, near Wayne University, um, two lunch counters where uh, people were, were uh, refused service, which I believe counted as uh, a verbal altercation, if I remember correctly. But yeah, those maps are really interesting to see because they do really track. I mean, I live in Detroit now. It's really interesting to, to see those things in action um, when you're thumbing through these fragile little pieces of paper and you're like, oh, that's right around the corner from where I work. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is always the cool thing. It is always cool. Sean, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your article. Um, and I, it helped me learn a little more and reminded me of a lot of things that we still need to do. Thanks so much. Yeah, I, I appreciate you having me. from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glagner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neering. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. And it was titled Racial Pragmatism. Pragmatism. Let me start that over. Pragmatism. Pragmatism. (laughs) You know, I had been getting worried because the past several podcasts uh, you have not mispronounced too many words and you know I, I i was getting a little worried about you dan it's it's being dan's locked back. up at home <laughs> dan's back everyone <laughs> <laughs> i forgot to do my vocal exercises <laughs> all right let's start that paragraph again